On the evening of January 23, 1959, the walls of Dormitory 51 at Ural Polytechnic Institute were abuzz with the chaos and happy chatter of nine friends preparing for the adventure of a lifetime. The traveling companions were all engineering students in their early 20s and members of the university's Explorer Club. This challenging voyage was to take them to the gateway to Siberia, a location in the Ural Mountains known to the indigenous Mansi tribe as Dead Mountain. Though the leader, Igor Dyatlov, and his team were all experienced outdoors people and seasoned hikers, Igor's mother had tried to talk him out of this wintry trek, imploring him to stay behind so he could focus on studying for the coming final semester of school. Undeterred, Dyatlov assured his mother that this would be his final trip and that the hikers would be back in plenty of time to start their next classes. Tragically, Igor was only half right. Although it would be his final trip, he did not make it back in time to graduate. Instead, by February 2nd, he and eight others would be dead, their half-dressed, frozen, and mutilated bodies scattered across the unforgiving terrain, cryptic clues to a mystery whose resolution continues to evade investigators and historians more than 60 years later. I'm your guest host, Kate. With me, I have my dear friend, Marina, and this is a baby break episode of Grimm. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, Gremlins. So this is a super special baby break episode of Grimm. You may have noticed um, that Kate is not Laura. Nope. She is at home um, on maternity leave as we said she was going to be. But as I promised, I said that I was going to bring on some fresh meat, if you will. And Kate is here. And I know I couldn't tell you what episode it was, but honestly, you guys know our episodes better than I do now. But you know, remember I said Colby is one of my best friends who I just claimed her. I just saw her at orientation and I was like, yep, you're my best friend now. Kate is the other one that I said I sat down next to in law school and was like, you're my best friend now. It's me. Mm-hmm. Hi. And she was like, do you know I'm like really dumb and like you probably don't want to be my best friend. I was like, nope, nope. You're my best friend now. <laughs> That's true. That's exactly how I said it. Yeah. My baby is free. Yeah. Um, Also during the opener, 
she was saying leader Igor and she was like Ligor. We're gonna Take edit it out. Ligor. But it was still very funny. <laughs> well, I'm um, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And okay. my job, I think, is to make you all really miss Laura. And I think I'm going to crush. <laughs> so well, you're we welcome. all we, we're all gonna miss Laura anyways. <laughs> I think she's having a little bit of FOMO, but you know, she needs a break, you know? It just happens. So first, we're going to do some Patreon shout outs. And I told Kate that she needs to be the stand in enthusiastic version of Laura. And I think she's up for the task. I'm here. So first shout out we have is Jennifer R. Woo! Jennifer, yes, we Jennifer. love you. Yes, Thank queen. you. Next up, we have Louisa M. Ooh, Woo! Louisa. Ooh, Louisa, thank you so much. We love you. We have Lauren M. Lauren. Get it, Lauren. Woo! Woo! We love you. Lacey S. Thank you, Lacey. Okay, Lacey. Yes, girl. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Woo. Talia M. Talia. Talia. We love yes. you. Thank you so much. And finally, we have Serena. Go, girl. Serena. Serena. We yes, love girl. you. Guys, thank you so much. As always, we just love you guys so much, and we appreciate your support. And I'm going to let Kate assault you with the... Assault, not assault you. Assault your ear holes. I really hope it's not an assault to your ear holes. Um, so... That's what the gremlins want, so... Okay, great. Well, then I hope it is. Whatever you guys like. Whatever you're into. All right, so I'm happy to be here. And um, just real quick, to get a few things out of the way, my sources for this episode were the book Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident by Donnie Icar. And the documentary film An Unknown Compelling Force by Liam Legiou. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's very French. Okay. Um, and there were also a host of podcasts, brief ones, and some articles that gave me background context. Um, I did want to shout out the book in particular, though. Um, the author really spent time helping the reader get to know the people behind the tragedy. And I think that illustrates um, why it's such an injustice that their case remains unsolved over half a century later. So... Dead Mountain is such a serious book it's title a, name. It's a tough start to a voyage, I will say. Yeah. I'm voyaging to Dead Mountain. What could go wrong? <laughs> Everything. Um, and then a quick disclaimer that I am a glutton for punishment because I can barely speak American English, my first language, <laughs> but yet I picked a very Russian case. Um, so bear with me. I really did try. I researched the pronunciations. I'm going to do my best, but also I said Lidor because of Igor. <laughs> so you see where this is likely to go wrong, but I am going to do my best. I mean, no disrespect. Yeah. For the inevitable mispronunciations that are coming. One of our dearest gremlins <laughs> wants me to do the chessboard killer, and I really want to do him for so her. Russian. But the names are so intimidating to me, I just haven't. It's like, the it's top of my list. The of the Russian name is not to be it's underestimated. Yeah. And I think you got to really put some oomph behind it, right? To, to, to give really it justice. To really give it to them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and then the last thing is, I just want to mention that I'm trying to bring you guys the facts, but um, this is an old case, and on top of that, it was uh, it occurred at the height of the Cold War, when literally everything, whether it made sense or not, was being classified by governments on both sides, and not released for many, many decades after. Um, so, so uh, I did my best to bring you the facts, but there are going to be portions of the discussion, particularly the theories of what happened to the hikers, that are just basically speculation corner. So they're like nothing to see here. I'm gonna tip you off to <laughs> Kate's conspiracy corner. It's a one-time it. deal. I love um, it. So anyway, take those for what they're worth. Okay. So with all that out of the way, let's get into it. Tell us about all those corpses on Dead Mountain, <laughs> Marita. How much do you know about the Dyatlov Pass incident? 
I know a little bit. I do recall listening to a podcast episode about it. And uh, I think that's where I first learned about paradoxical undressing, which Colby has covered. And I want to say that there's a Sasquatch involved, possibly. <laughs> that's It wouldn't be maybe. Russia if there wasn't a Yeti. <laughs> All right. So, um, so that's a good foundation. Okay. I'm ready. It, it makes as much sense as everything else. Refresh in this my memory. Horrifying case. <laughs> All right, so in January of 1959, a team of young hikers left on what we now know to be a very doomed expedition deep Mm -hmm. into the Ural Mountains. Um, But before we get to their gruesome end, I do want to tell you a little bit about each of them because they were real people and they are, to this day, still mourned by surviving friends and family. So um, the original group of nine were all students in their early 20s studying various types of engineering at the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Sverdlovsk, Russia. They were all members of UPI's hiking club and had all earned their grade two certifications in the sport. They had chosen this challenging 16-day hike through the frigid terrain expressly because if they completed it successfully and documented it appropriately, they would earn their grade three certifications upon their return. And that is the highest certification available, and it indicates an expert skill level. So the students had a month left of their winter break, and they were excited to check this off their list. That's too many days of hiking. We have to remember, this is before the internet. Okay. okay. All right. All right. <laughs> there okay. was no Instagram to scroll on okay. winter break, and these these kids just were, they were up for a challenge. You have 16 days to spend (laughs) away from technology that doesn't exist. That's right. You you might as well go to the absolute frigid taiga of Siberia because why not? Okay. Thank you for reminding me that there was no like phones or internet because yeah. We may post some of these pictures, but if you could see what their dormitory looked like, you might understand why they were like, well, you know, why not? (laughs) Why not? We got nothing better to do. Why not go to Dead Mountain? (laughs) In January. Okay. So the original group of nine students was comprised of seven males and two females. And the men were Igor Dyatlov. He was 23 years old. He was the leader of the hiking group, a radio enthusiast, photographer, and engineering student in his final semester at UPI. He was the head of the Explorers Club, and he was a quiet, self-assured young man and, um, by all accounts, the most experienced hiker of the group. There was Alexander Kolevatov. He was 14 years, 24 years old. I was like, damn, he was young. (laughs) So young. A prodigy, really. (laughs) Um, A student of nuclear physics at UPI. There was Rustam Slobodin. He was 23 years old. He was called Rustic by his friends. He had, and I mean Rustic like a nickname, like not, he was Rustic like a cabin in the woods. Although both were probably true. Mm -hmm. He had recently graduated from UPI with a degree in mechanical engineering. There was Nicolai Thibault Brignol, named um, Kolya or Thibault to his friends. He was 23. He just graduated from UPI with a degree in civil construction. Get ready. There are three Yuris. Okay. It's like the John Smith of Russia. Okay. All okay. right. So Yuri Durashenko, he was 21, a radio engineering student. He came from a very poor family. He was extremely brave, apparently. On a prior expedition with the Explorers Club, a bear had approached the tent, and with nothing in his hands to defend himself, Yuri, number one, had left the tent and somehow scared the bear away with just bravado and his own body so i I watch enough ridiculousness to know that that is very much something that a russian man would do a very impressive man i'm Mm -hmm. just saying um yuri number two is yuri krivonashenko 
He was 23 years old and known as Georgi to his friends. He studied hydraulics and construction. He was a bit of a prankster. In fact, he was arrested by police for panhandling deceptively at a train station at one point on their journey to the um, staging grounds of their hike. The group asked the police to let him go, which was not a small thing to do in Soviet Russia because it could get you killed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it worked out for them. (laughs) These were not... um, What is panhandling deceptively? It's a charge that you could only get in Soviet Russia. Okay. (laughs) We don't have the equivalent of it. I guess it was because he didn't actually need the money. Okay. His um, hiking, you know, teammate had been charged with keeping track of all of their money. And he was like, I want to go to the cafe. And she was like shut up, Yuri, and wouldn't give him the money. So Okay, so he begged for it, and that's illegal because he didn't prank, actually need it. Yes, he okay. passed his cap around in the train station, and they were like, we will put you in a gulag for this. <laughs> and so, okay. thankfully, they did not do that. Excellent. His friends, although it might have been a... Might honestly, have saved his life. Yeah, compared to what happened, it would actually It's been, one of those, the butterfly effect. Yes. That's what, Laura and I talk about that all the time. It actually would have been better than what happened. Yeah. So, 50-50. Poor, poor Yuri. Poor Yuri number two. Number two. Poor Yuri number two. (laughs) So the friends asked the police to let him go, which was a big deal at that time. And miraculously, that worked out for them. Um, But they did almost miss their train. And again, it's one of those what could have been moments. And the final Yuri, Yuri number three, was Yuri Yudit. He was 21 years old. He was the only surviving member of the group. He had to turn back on January 28th after the first day in the mountains due to chronic rheumatic pain in his back and his legs. Um, and the survivor's guilt would torture him. He later said, if I could ask God one question, it would be, what happened to my friends? Oh my gosh. So luckily for him, he had this chronic childhood condition, but as you can imagine, terrible for him. Oh my God, the survive. That's like, that's a position to be in. When you were talking earlier too about like the missing the train or the panhandling. I was thinking about like, this is so dark, but like the people that were um, late to work on 9-11 or, you know, people that missed their flight for the the planes that crashed into the Pentagon, like it literally saved their lives, but you know, they lost friends and family and coworkers. And like, that was probably this guy's best friends. And yes. Yeah. And he was a little bit, you know, to go off script a little bit, he was sort of a little bit of an outcast, I guess, Yuri okay. Yudin. He was... Yuri number three. Yuri number three. He was sort of a friend to everyone, but not viewed by any of the other young men as like a, a competitor for any women's affections. Like he was sort of okay. just a little bit of a goofball, a little bit of an outcast. And so I think he really loved this group of people and really like identified with them and appreciated them. And it was just such a blow to him when they were all you know, found dead. Deceased. Um, yeah. And he held out hope for a long time that they wouldn't be, but... Wow. Yeah, so difficult. Um, and then there were also two women on the trip. One was named Lyudmila Dumanina. She was known to her friends as Lyuda. At 20 years old, she was the youngest of the group, and she was studying construction and economics. She was no pushover. Apparently, she'd actually been shot in the leg accidentally by a hunter on a prior hiking expedition Damn! and not only did she endure the wound without complaint she actually hiked many miles back to town you know again 1950s what a bad bitch she was so bad um for treatment on her wounded leg she just wrapped it there were no painkillers um she was very cheerful by all accounts and just was like mistakes happen and just ski hiked 
I don't know, 10 miles back to town to have a, you know, bullet removed from her leg and have it wrapped up. So these people were not incapable in the outdoors. That's the thing that I'm really trying to stress, even though they were younger. These are not the 23-year-olds of today. These are like really serious, devoted hikers that care a lot about the sport. Obviously, they're going for expert level certification in their early 20s so that's crazy um, my toddler skinned her knee and asked for a walker so (laughs) she's not bullet in the leg level exactly exactly Exactly. really there's a there's a big dichot there's a there's a bold dichotomy right there mine needs a hug if the goldfish aren't the right color so i hear you um and then the final um hiker was zenaida Komogorova. She was called Zena by her friends, blissfully for me. She was 22. She studied radio engineering. She had been on many prior expeditions and she had developed a crush actually on Yuri Doroshenko. This was the Yuri that fought the bear. And she had Yuri number one. Yes. Okay. And she was like, listen, that's hot. (laughs) And they had been involved briefly. Who can blame the girl? I mean, if I see a man that's just barehanded fighting a bear, I'm like, you can provide, you know. Um, that was over by the time of the Dyatlov group expedition. They were on good terms. They were still friends. It was nothing weird. Um, by all accounts, they were just buddies again. So, um, considering the times and in light of what women were going through in the U.S. in the 1950s, um, it is worth noting that women in the Explorers Club in Russia were actually treated as capable and equals to men. So, wow, for all the... <laughs> Whatever we feel about other countries, Mm -hmm. I will say that this seemed, at least in the Explorers Club, to be sort of a a foundational principle. Women are equal to men. There's nothing we can do that they can't do. Wow. And they shared the uh, responsibilities and the tasks evenly. I love that journey for them. Uh, Me too. What's it like? It's good stuff. (laughs) One commentator noted that fraternity, equality, and respect were the reigning values among the Russian hikers regardless of gender. Okay. So everybody on the trek had a job and they were responsible for different tasks. They were impeccably organized. Igor was a bit of a taskmaster, a bit of a type A person. Um, I appreciate people like that because I need them in my life. Otherwise, (laughs) I'm just a ship without an anchor. So everybody needs an Igor in their life. And he was was the type A guy for this hike. He um, just... In addition to being the most experienced hiker, he was also very self-assured, very organized. And so he kind of oversaw the hikers in divvying up the tasks. And another thing that's interesting is that they needed to, again, pre-internet, they needed to document that they had done all of the right things to get their grade three certification. right, right. So a lot of our sources, um, in addition to just interviews with people who encountered the group of hikers on their way to the mountains, Mm -hmm. our primary sources, they come from journals and camera, like film rolls that were discovered on the hikers' bodies when they were found. So spooky. Very spooky, but also really helpful. Helpful. Oh, helpful. Yeah, for sure. Not as helpful as you'd hope, but But helpful. But a little spooky, too. (laughs) Very spooky. So um, so I do think in hindsight, it looks weird that they had so thoroughly documented everything mm-hmm. without cell phones. But the reason they were doing it is because for that hiking. they had to get uh, certification that they could do this very difficult thing. And right. they had to prove that level of difficulty. So there are lots of photos of them just basically skiing off into whiteout wilderness conditions. As one does. Uphill both ways. Yeah. And um, that's why they were doing that is okay. to prove to the... Russian certifying body 
Okay. Again, a bit of a foreign thing to us, but they right. did have that, that they were capable hikers. Okay. Okay. So we'll shift now to the timeline. So on the evening of January 23rd, 1959, the group left that dormitory where they'd been completing their final preparations and they boarded a train at 9.05 p.m., from Sverdlovsk to Serov. And those are two different cities, in case you couldn't catch it in my pronunciation. <laughs> the trail they intended to hike was so remote, it would be a journey of several days just to get to the mountain site from which they planned to depart. So on the train, the group was actually joined unexpectedly, somewhat unexpectedly, although a lot of hay is made of this. They did have a couple of weeks' notice by a 10th person. This is a man who is widely reported to be named Alexander Zolotaryov. However, his name was also Semyon Zolotaryov. And he went by Sasha. Just okay. three names, no big deal. They all okay. sound the same. It's fine. Yeah. Um, he was 37 at the time, and he was the oldest member of the group, as you can probably guess, by well over a decade. He had served in the Red Army in World War II, and he was a decorated veteran. He'd been given many medals and awards for his bravery in battle. He now worked in a mining factory and as a hiking instructor. He was also studying to be a military engineer in all that spare time. He must have had. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Again, no internet. People were busy. Yeah. <laughs> they were staying busy. They're like, I have six degrees. I mean, what they else like, is there to do? They were like, if I stop moving, I will literally freeze to death, <laughs> so I got to keep moving. So um, you said that he was somewhat unexpected. He told someone that he might come. Is that what it was? That's right. And the sources, again, on this are a little wishy-washy. It depends what you read. But mm. effectively, he had communicated to one of the hikers that okay. his plans had fallen through. So he was going to go to this location either way. Okay. He had intended to join another group. That group had decided not to go. And he wanted to complete the trek because his hiking certification, his hiking instructor job would okay. pay him more if he could complete this like next level difficult okay. hike. All right. So he wanted to get it out of the way. When yeah. he heard there were other people going, he asked if he could join them. Gotcha. He'd gotten approval, but apparently the process was a little more diffuse. So he'd maybe spoken to one person and they'd said it was fine. But not everybody was expecting him. So it was a little weird, a little jarring. He sort of joined okay. them in this really cramped train car. Yeah. Um, They're like, who invited Alex, they Sasha? They literally were like, what is happening? Sasha There's Baron an Cohen. old man <laughs> in the train car with us. But um, it turned out that he was pretty friendly, quick-witted, and obviously very um, talented hiker, very experienced. Yeah. And they ended up getting along with him pretty well. And it didn't take long for him to fit right into the group. Okay. Despite his, you know, he was significantly older. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. 
Plan your trip at aruba.com. Um, so they were taking this train to a place called Surov. They arrived there at 7.39 the following morning. They were unable to find a place to sleep. They got to the train station. It was locked when they arrived. And the people inside were just like, no, go oh. somewhere else. We don't care. Okay. So their next train wasn't coming until the evening. So they decided they would just walk into town and look for somewhere to rest. They came upon a school. The headmaster actually agreed to find them a place to put their packs down and they could rest in exchange. They had to speak to the students at the school about their journey and about their studies at the university. They were happy to do that. Apparently, the children were absolutely delighted. Yeah. Um, And the diary that the hikers kept indicated that they were really happy with this experience themselves. They had a great time. That's a fair deal. Yeah, it's kind of cute, right? Yeah. Um, So that evening, the hikers boarded a train to Ivdel, which is the next city that they were on their way to. And they arrived there around midnight. They continued on their travels. In the interest of time, I'm not going to go into all of it, but suffice it to say that their location was so remote, it was about 300 miles from Sverdlovsk. So they had to take trains, buses, and eventually... (laughs) Trains, planes, and automobiles? (laughs) You wish there was a plane, and they do too. Yeah. They had to take a horse-drawn sleigh Oh my at god, one I was point. thinking like huskies. Yeah. No, just a oh horse. Oh my gosh. Just one sad horse. Oh my god. Who had to just pull their bags and, and the horse, it's just one horse. So he was like, I can't be pulling nine hikers along with your bags. So they had to ski behind the horse. Oh my god! And the horse just pulled the bags. And so this is what I'm talking about. I mean, this is the kind of um, <laughs> sort of rusticness that we can only dream about in our nightmares. Right? Count me out. <laughs> yeah, well, count me out. My knees already hurt yeah. just thinking about it. Count <laughs> <Right>? me out. <laughs> so, so I would survive this trip because I wouldn't make it past day one. Oh, absolutely. I'd be like, see you guys at the end. I'll have milk I and got cookies a waiting. Sore. I got to yeah. turn around. You know. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. The train jostled my bones. Yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> These people were hardcore though. I yeah. mean, one got shot in the leg, and she just kept on trucking. So casual. A little bit of a bumpy ride is not going to slow her down. Unfortunately for Yuri Yudin, it did slow him down. As they were taking more and more sort of unreliable modes of transportation over mm-hmm. very um, unfinished roads, yep, he started feeling significant pain. Of course, if you're lying in the bed of a truck that's going over a bumpy, rocky roads to literal Siberia, mm-hmm. your bones are going to be like, I don't know, man. I which, don't know which Yuri number is he? He's the final Yuri, Yuri number three. Oh, the third one. Okay, so he's the one with the... Okay, so he's the one that has the rheumatic pain. Yes, exactly. And this had been a condition he'd had since he had rheumatic fever as a child. So this is not unusual, I guess, for the time. People sort of got fevers and it just... If they lived through them, it like plagued them for the rest of their lives. Like people with long haul COVID, basically. Truly. They're just like, I'll never right. be the same. Right. If you've read The Velveteen Rabbit, Scarlet <laughs> Fever, it's same idea. Just Russian. Oh my God. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so that's what happened to Yuri Yudin. And so he knew he was probably going to have to turn back, but he just was hoping it would clear up on his own or on its own rather. And so yep. he kept waiting and kept waiting, but... Eventually, he got to the mountains, and he knew he was either going to have to turn back or become a liability to the hikers. So with Yuri having to turn back on January 28th, it was, they were all sad to see him go, but it was at a point where he would be a liability to his companions if he had continued onto the mountains and then gotten seriously injured. Oh, right, right. It was sort of at a do-or-die point for him. So well, yeah, because then they have to get him back. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody's on skis. So I don't know if I've stressed this yet, but the terrain is so snowy 
and so mountainous that by the time they finished the multi-day trek from Sverdlovsk just to get to the mountains, right? So that's been a couple of days. It's been like four or five days. Mm -hmm. Then the real trip actually begins, which is ski hiking. So they have these backpacks. <laughs> that sounds so terrible. Horrible, oh right? my God. And they have these skis and they're basically cross-country skiing across Russian terrain in the most challenging part of the, the year. Okay. Which is January, February. And along the way, they have been advised by locals. They have stayed with locals. They have um, been to various sorts of encampments and so when you're out this far remote in the russian terrain, terrain yeah in the late 50s it's not maybe the same today but it, at the time it was very remote to a point of maybe a settlement would have 15 20 people sometimes maybe 80 people wow but it was temporary right so they had these wood cutting settlements that would have sort of just temporary facilities they would clear the forest around the area it was all lumberjacks oh wow and then they would leave once they had cleared the area and so at at the time on their way passing through the hikers had consulted with a a local lumberjack basically and he Mm -hmm. had warned them that even for the Monsi people, the indigenous people of the area who had been there for many centuries, it was dangerous to climb the mountain at this time of year. Lumberjacks, locals, people who had been in the area for a long time, they had warned that the wind could get so strong that it could blow you away. Literally. Okay. People had died. Again, no internet, no like primary source news type right. of thing that you could easily access. So perhaps the hikers had just written it off as legends or right, right, just lore to keep them away. To scare people off the mountain. Although they did seem to be pretty serious people. So I think they might have just said, hey, we hear you, but we're well prepared. And they were. They were about as well prepared as they could be for anything <laughs> that Except was what happened to them. sort of <laughs> con- contemplatable to the human mind yeah is that a word Con- i don't con- know but if it's not contemplatable welcome to the english language contemplable contemptible <laughs> okay yes laura and i don't know words either so it's fine this is this is what the gremlins have come to know comprehendable perhaps comprehendable is that a word it's unfathomable that's what they <laughs> that's the one unfathomable that's a good that's where one I was going. Yeah, that's a good thank one thank you so much it only took us three tries contemplable <laughs> I like it. Contemplatable. <laughs> it has a few extra syllables. <laughs> right, so Yuri heads back. This is January 28th. He says his final farewell to his friends. He returns back home due to poor health. Mm-hmm. And instead of going back, straight back to Sverdlovsk to the university because it is winter break, yep. he decides to stop off at home and spend some time with his family. So he, just keep that in mind, put a pin okay. in that. He's not exactly aware of what's going on when his friends don't come back in time. Oh, okay. So he wasn't, yeah. He wasn't at like home base to find out they weren't. Exactly. Okay. And also, it was relatively common i guess at the time again chalk it up to the lack of and we see this in other stories that are from this time period people just sort of go and do their own thing and they're like hey i'll see you in a month maybe it'll be two months who can say and so that was sort of the vibe here it was not that wishy-washy but um when he left igor had told yuri i'm gonna be a few days later than we had initially planned okay so at first when they didn't return 
even without Yuri having called ahead like he was supposed to, he was supposed to telegram the university and say, hey, Igor says they're going to be a little bit late. He forgot to do that. Oops. Even without that, the university just assumed it. They were like, yeah, well, you know, people take time. The voyages are intense. Right. You know, it's it's literally Siberia. Yeah. It's not unusual. And they're students. It's not unusual for them to take their time or for it to be a little bit later than they expected. So at first, it didn't raise any eyebrows, right? It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. You kept saying it. (laughs) To be eaten by a Sasquatch. (laughs) It was in my head. It had to come out. It just had to. (laughs) Apologies to all the gremlins for that, for my voice. So he leaves and the rest of the group continues skiing along north of the Lozva River. So for the first couple of days, they're pretty lucky. They have good weather. This is January 30th, 31st. They continue along the Ospia River. Okay. Um, but on their way, they do note some things in their journals. It sounds like from the journal entries that they were in high spirits, the weather was relatively cooperative for these first couple of days, and they made good time. However, as they're hiking along the river, they do see these Mansi. Again, Mansi is the... The native uh, people. The native tribe, exactly. Um, and they're carved into the trees. And the hikers don't know what the symbols mean, but they've never had any trouble with the Mansi people. And they actually believe that they're following Mansi tracks Okay. for those first, first couple of days. Because of how remote the area is and yep. how strange the snowpack can be, basically, if you make tracks, they don't move. Okay. They just kind of, you ever see that like hard packed snow? Yes, yes. Where it just stays there. Mm-hmm. So they're following old snow tracks. Not that old, but they know it's probably Monsi because nobody else is out here okay. at this time of year. It's like, unless you're these kids or Monsi hunters or hikers, you're not going to be out here. Were they footprints or paw prints? They were ski tracks. Okay. So first they're oh, following the ski mm-hmm. tracks and then they diverge from the ski tracks and they start following a set of footprints and a set of paw prints. And that's why they decide it's Monsi because it's probably a hunter with a dog. I was like a hunter with a wolf, right? He's just walking <laughs> his pet wolf in Siberia. Sure. Same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Basically, more just or less. Bigger. Yeah. And so they end up following the trail, but they do see all of these sort of cryptic carvings in the trees and they just kind of think, okay, whatever. We'll- sure. Why not proceed? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Do we find out what the cryptic carvings mean? We do not, but everybody ends up dead. So we'll get into that. Okay. All All right. right. (laughs) All right. So on January 30th, the first day that they document in their diaries, seeing these cryptic symbols carved Mm -hmm. into the trees, they do note that the deep snow is starting to make skiing more difficult. So they're traversing this terrain, they're still in the tree line, but they are getting through the forest and they're about to be on just this like bald mountain face, which is as unforgiving. Right. I I mean, picture the moon. That's basically what they're on. Yeah, you don't want that. Although I've heard there's no wind in space. There is wind in Siberia. So the moon, but worse. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember my last trip to the moon, but you know. You know. I'll just picture a cold, windy day in new england i guess i'm just gonna tell you cannabis is legal in connecticut now if you ever want to take a free trip to the moon it's your friendly cannabis lawyer announcement all right so (laughs) so despite the problems they are in good spirits they are not making much progress because the wind is crazy the snow is like white out blinding conditions and there are actually some pictures that hopefully will be posted to the instagram that show the hikers just kind of hiking off into white out in wow. a single file line, 
Couldn't be me. I wouldn't do it. No. But blessings upon them for attempting <laughs> it. Um, and this is just what they were into, I guess. This is what they signed up for. So okay. they do make it to February 1st. And this is the last time that we see any diary entries from them. Adorably, they started making their diary entries in the form of a like school newspaper. And they talked about Yetis and hiking gear and things like that. But it was all very tongue-in-cheek. Like they were like, oh. newsflash. What about Yetis? And they were trying to be cute, but I think that has gotten a lot of traction in yeah. subsequent years. People were like, well, obviously. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> there was a Yeti involved. by Yetis. And really, I just think these were 20-year-olds with right. active imaginations, and there was no internet. So Who were, were probably like, going insane in, like, the Siberian wilderness. Exactly. Yeah. They were like, we each get one cracker a day. Yeah. And we've been skiing for seven hours. No, I too think much. they just, they needed to make jokes to, yes. to get through the day. And so. Don't we all? There are some photos on the camera roll that um, the most active, imaginative people among us look at and say, these must be um, abominable snowmen or yetis or whatever (laughs) word you want to use for it. Mm -hmm. However, I think it's pretty clear, especially from the context of the prior photographs, that these were just, they were messing around. Okay. And so you can tell it's like, here's a human in the snow, they're playing. Okay. And then like the last photo is sort of blurry, but it's clearly the same guy. So I don't give a lot of credence to the Yeti theory. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies to my Yeti heads out there. (laughs) What do I know? If it's a Yeti, my apologies to the Yeti and to the Yeti community. But I think on the camera roll, it's it's pretty clear. It's just people having a good time. Okay. But the theory persists. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? It's Siberia. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, on February 1st, it's um, the hikers, they construct a temporary storage shelter and they leave a bunch of their supplies behind. This includes their mandolin, which had been keeping spirits really high. Okay. They were playing songs. They were singing poetry. They were doing like weird anti-government riffs because that's what people do, I guess, when Mm -hmm. you don't have the internet. Yep. You can't just go on Twitter and be like, this place sucks. Yep. (laughs) And no one can hear you talking about the government. It's a safe space to do it. Or can they? We're going to get into that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But suffice it to say, there's a theory that the very old man among them, who is my age, by the way, and that's how you know he's very old, (laughs) might have been a KGB agent. Oh, okay. We'll get into that in a minute. But that is one of the prevailing theories that maybe the reason all these people ended up dead was because they picked up the wrong person okay who had to be there which is why he was so insistent that when his last trip got canceled he had to join another group even though it was a little weird of him to do that Mm -hmm. anyway um so they make their final entries they decide to set up their tent what most people speculate had happened was that they had hiked past the tree line so there's this forest for a while and then it just turns into truly nothing it's just a snow-covered bald-faced mountain with absolutely nothing. This, by the way, is why people who are well-versed in Siberian culture and the the native culture of the indigenous tribes don't give a ton of stock into the dead mountain theory. Mm-hmm. They're like, you know, it was called dead mountain because nothing can grow there. It wasn't right. like a weird omen. It was right. just that it was so cold and terrible that, <laughs> yeah, that nothing, even trees yeah. couldn't grow past like oh a foot gosh. tall. So. So people like to make a lot of hay out of that, but it was really just that it was very unforgiving. So they had Mm -hmm. gotten past the tree line. They'd gotten about a mile up the slope. And then I think what happened, what people speculate happened is the weather got so bad that they had two choices. They could either set up camp now 
in a pretty unforgiving spot or they could turn around, but they would have to backtrack. They would have to lose progress they had already made. They'd skied up a mile of a hill. I don't do cross-country skiing. I'm too weak. I don't know how you go up I don't have on cross-country skis. I don't have the core strength. But if I did, I imagine I'd be very sad about <laughs> to give up a mile of progress yes. yeah. in blinding whiteout conditions. So the prevailing theory is that is why they camped where they did. That on top of they were trying to get this expert level hiking certification. Right. And so the more difficult the stuff they did and documented the more the better their chances be to get right. that certification. And so, cause a lot of, again, a lot of like theorizing goes around about, well, why wouldn't they just hike back to the tree line? Right. It would have given them warmth. It would have, but there was a reason they were right. out there for this difficulty certification. So okay. they wanted to try their hand at doing the most difficult thing possible. So they set up camp there and they pitched this tent. They apparently had started making dinner they had gotten into various states of sort of undress. I don't mean that in like a, a sexy way, but I mean that in a way where they weren't wearing just like seven layers. Another <laughs> seven thing about, layers instead of 13. Exactly. Okay. An- another thing about 1959, the North Face did not exist. Oh. Mm-hmm. Columbia. Did it, they just have like newspapers shoved inside? They were inside? literally wearing homemade sweaters. Okay. There just was nothing. Okay. Man. So makes me really appreciate the North Face. Tough times. Tough times. Yeah. There was no Patagonia. I was gonna say I can't live without my <laughs> yeah. Patagonia quarter Canada zip. Goose did not <laughs> exist. And so they, well, they were... existed, just not in jackets, right? <laughs> right, right, right. They were the kind of Canada goose that would assault you <laughs> yes. on a walkway still, on your way to class. Still existed. <laughs> yeah. Right. It just wasn't in a jacket you to just, keep you warm. It was free. It didn't cost five hundred dollars. <laughs> so so they were in a tough spot. They were just using sort of homemade stuff. And so they were in the tent, but it was clear to people who found the tent afterwards, foreshadowing that mm-hmm. <laughs> that they had not, um, they had been winding down for the night. They, there was no plan to leave. So they set up camp on the eastern slope of this mountain at an altitude of about a thousand meters, which for anybody who's hiked, and I am sadly a person who's hiked, <laughs> I have many regrets. This is one of them. That's not that high, but that's where they set up camp. That, that's okay. just an indicator of how bad the weather was. Do we know how, how many meters is feet? A thousand meters is how many feet? It's a great question. The it's metric system. Three thousand hard. Five hundred and forty okay. feet. Thank you. So it's a lot of feet, but it's not the most feet. Okay. You know, um, and that is the last we hear of the hikers. It's the last we hear of their journal entries. They were in. Still optimistic, but slightly dimmed spirits just because of how slow their progress had become. Because and they of had the to weather. leave the mandolin. They had to leave the mandolin. They weren't yeah. smoking. That's the other thing. They had all decided to take this pact to not smoke, which if you've ever met a Russian or any Eastern European, that's like taking them away from their tracksuits. They need their cigarettes. <laughs> I don't know why they did this to themselves. They were freaks. They were gluttons for punishment. But God bless them. They decided they weren't going to smoke on this trip. Okay. And so they were in a bad way. You know, they mm-hmm. were in Siberia with no cigarettes. They didn't drink. Again, foreign to me. God bless them. But, and the weather was terrible. It was very cold. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even get to eat their dinner before... Whatever happened. Before something happened. Happened. Okay. We're going to talk all about the state of their bodies when they were discovered 
as well as the autopsies and their findings and the various theories that have been proposed for what happened to the hikers in part two. And um, we didn't originally know this was going to be two parts, but uh, Cessna really came in hot like Laura (laughs) and I, and she read the books and she just got all the history and has to give us all the information. Um, And I have been apprised that there's like so many more pages and it's just going to be too long for one episode. So I'm so sorry you're going to have to wait for two weeks to hear the conclusion of the uh, Diet Love deaths, but... Um, it's going to be worth it guys. And it's, it's just like, it's all bonus content on baby break. So you're welcome. Love you guys. I'm sorry. And I love you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if you're enjoying listening to Grimm, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grim colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon and get an awesome shout out, I mean, it's like the highlight of everyone's day, I know. You can go to Patreon and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos, which I will post all the Siberian wilderness for this, uh, this episode. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. 